the Paris Agreement said basically every country in the world, developed economies, emerging economies, much less developed economies, all understood the importance of pursuing the low-carbon future. It's Aspen Ideas to Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. That's former U.S. Energy Secretary Ernest Moniz. In June, the Trump administration announced the United States would withdraw from the Paris Climate Agreement, a global action plan adopted by nearly 200 nations. The U.S. is a leader in developing natural gas and renewable energy, so it was a key player in the agreement. With that leadership now abdicated, Moniz worries countries will struggle to fill the gap the U.S. left behind. Aspen Ideas To Go is a weekly show that brings you compelling talks from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other programs presented by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. The Paris Agreement targets a reduction in CO2 emissions. Last year, natural gas accounted for 33% of the U.S. electricity supply, surpassing coal for the first time in history. However, Moniz thinks more needs to be done to keep temperatures down across the globe. To Moniz, electricity is the sector that is the most decarbonizable. He thinks to combat climate change, big breakthroughs in technology and innovation are essential. Now that President Trump has said the country's backing out of the Paris Accord, what will become of the work Moniz did in the Obama White House? What are the consequences of backing out? And how can local governments and business leaders step in to keep the country on course toward a low-carbon future? In today's show, Moniz talks with Susan Tierney. She's a senior advisor at Analysis Group, where she consults on energy markets and economic and environmental regulation. They discuss what's in store as the nation moves toward withdrawing from the Paris Agreement. Here's Tierney. Good morning, everybody. This session is called The Road from Paris, and Ernie was critically involved in The Road to Paris. So I'd like to hear Ernie's thoughts about what it means to have had a little bit of a derailment off of the road, and what you think we can expect from continued progress even on that road without the Trump administration's support. Okay, well, thank you, Sue. Now, in terms of the road from Paris, first of all, let me, let me say what Paris was, because I think everyone uh, naturally uh, in thinking about Paris thinks about the Paris Agreement, which by definition was the last day of the Paris meeting in, in, uh, in December 2015. Uh, but I also want to, rem to remind people that on the first day of the Paris meeting, uh, uh, a very important event happened as well, and that was when the leaders of 20 countries uh, with Bill Gates there representing uh, 28 international uh, investors, launched something called Mission Innovation. Uh, the, the idea was that these 20 countries, now, now it's grown, uh, would double the, uh, their governmental investments in clean energy innovation over a five-year period. The important point was the Paris Agreement said basically every country in the world developed economies, emerging economies, much less developed economies, all understood the importance of pursuing a low-carbon future and frankly took on, you know, they're not mandatory, but took on uh, targets 
that are not so different among those classes of countries, a stark change from Kyoto in the, in the 90s. And secondly, that the innovation focus, for the first time, squarely put technology innovation at the center of the global solution. So those are both components that are important. That's the launching point now for what's happening now. Unfortunately, the, the administration has put forward statements and proposals uh, that uh, are counter to both of those threads, uh, uh, which is another form of dissonance that I'll come to. Uh, so first of all, of course, on June 1st, uh, the president announced the uh, beginning of the process to withdraw from Kyoto. Uh, that is a process that will go until November of 2020, but that's little consolation because uh, the idea is in the intervening period, the administration will do nothing to advance towards the goals, uh, even though technically we will still be in the agreement uh, until the end of the administration, almost the end of the administration. I don't agree with that, obviously, uh, and there are multiple shortcomings, in my view, uh, uh, with that. Uh, first, at a very high level, the announcement of withdrawal reinforces a pattern of, uh, of a lot of uncertainty being created uh, among our allies and friends in particular uh, with regard to the reliability of the United States in meeting its uh, obligations in supporting the institutions that we have spent 70 years building. Uh, that includes, you know, talk about NATO, talk about trade barriers. You go on and on and on uh, with, uh, with that. Secondly, Leadership in the climate uh, uh, discussion or activities, uh, which of course means an awful lot to a lot of our allies and friends, was very hard won. Uh, and the United States uh, exercised that. And most critically, uh, I would argue, it was the joint announcement of President Obama and President Xi of China in uh, November of 2014 that was the turning point. That's what made Paris happen uh, and bring uh, every country along. The old excuse, China isn't doing anything, was blown away uh, in, that, uh, in that joint, uh, joint announcement. Uh, now that leadership has been abdicated, uh, others, including China, have announced their intention of, of stepping forward. And, um, and I believe they will, and I believe Europe, especially Germany, uh, will. India has said the same. But frankly, without U.S. leadership in these complex uh, activities, uh, there will certainly uh, not be a complete filling of that, of that role, I'm afraid. Third, the parallel activity I mentioned on innovation. So the administration put in a budget proposal to Congress that instead of taking that factor of two agreed to in Paris in the numerator, they put it in the denominator to divide the innovation investments uh, by a factor of two. That is connected, in my view, to the strong statements made by China and Europe and India in terms of leadership, because we're not going back. We are going to a low-carbon future. It's going to be a little bit rocky for a few years with our administration's actions, but we're not going back. Consequently, there is little doubt that there will be a multi-trillion dollar clean energy marketplace globally. That's a big market. If we want to A, withdraw from leadership, and B, reduce our innovation investments, 
believe me, there are plenty ready to step in on that score and, and, get, and get market share. Well, so, would you talk about China in that regard? Yes. Uh, <laughs> let me add just one last thing. Yeah. And, and, the, uh, and this gets to, now to the dissonance in two, uh, in two uh, respects. One is the dissonance that in withdrawing from Paris, many in the administration, Secretary Perry, Administrator Pruitt, have said, kind of, look, the solution anyway is innovation. Dissonance with the budget request, cut by a factor of two. Secondly, Administrator Pruitt said immediately after the president's announcement, uh, the Supreme Court ruling holds on what is called the endangerment finding, that is that carbon dioxide must be regulated under the Clean Air Act. Nothing was offered, and again, a dissonance, I would say, fundamentally with the science, uh, the science consensus. So I think on four counts, uh, this is the administration's actions of the last month have been uh, very, very uh, un uh, unhelpful is a uh, very mild way of saying it. So I have so many questions. Let me start with China then. Mm -hmm. That multi-trillion dollar marketplace is one in which you can imagine China going gangbusters to take advantage of that. And I am reminded of the theme of the new administration with regard to energy dominance. So how do those two things jive, given that our clock might get cleaned, if that's the right metaphor? Well, China is uh, making enormous investments in, in R&D, in clean energy. Uh, certainly, if the administration's proposal uh, were to go through Congress, which I don't believe it will, but if it were to go through Congress, within five years, we would have gone from by far the leader in these innovation investments to being significantly behind both China and the EU. Secondly, I want to emphasize China is not just investing in you know, renewable energy and nuclear energy, uh, carbon capture and sequestration. They are doing that. But in addition, they are making breathtaking investments in the underlying enabling technologies for the future. Uh, for example, the United States has been pretty unquestionably, and DOE has been the lead in establishing our country as the leader in high-performance computing. You look what China is doing right now. Uh, it is incredible, including, by the way, recruiting back to China all those Chinese who got PhDs in the United States and were happily working in our universities and companies. There's a lot of uncertainty now, a lot of uh, reverse brain drain, if you like, uh, going on there. So they are, they are uh, making impressive investments uh, uh, across the board. Now, in the United States, obviously, we do have a very vibrant private sector involved in, uh, in innovation, but the statements often made, I won't name names, uh, that somehow the government does not play a role in this are completely false. And uh, most in industry recognize that uh, of, of the federal investments having a very critical role in, in getting things going. A good example is now you mentioned energy, because you mentioned energy dominance. First of all, let me say, I don't know what energy dominance exactly means if it isn't the picture we already have in the United States, where I might say, I'm not, it just happens to be a time period, the Obama administration, 
when natural gas production went through the roof, when oil production went through the roof, when deployment of wind and solar and cost reduction of wind and solar, not the, I guess went to, the, went to the basement in terms of the cost reduction, uh, et cetera. So this has been an incredible decade. Of, Sounds like of, it's making of, America of great. Uh, 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 it preserved America's greatness, uh, actually. Uh, so, uh, so that's really, really critical. But tying it back to the theme of federal investment, if you take the, and there are various views, but the fracking revolution uh, that led to the enormous increase in oil and natural gas production in the United States, the reality is the Department of Energy uh, in the late 70s, early 80s, made the initial investments characteriz character characterizing these reservoirs, uh, supporting some of the technology development. Then it was picked up in the 80s and early 90s by a public-private partnership, Gas Research Institute, uh, in which uh, cost-sharing was done to demonstrate the technologies. Um, uh, frankly, a, a legend in this is a guy named George Mitchell. Mm -hmm. uh, Todd, his son, I know, is involved in the Ideas Festival today. Um, uh, uh, was a pioneer here, but it was a public-private partnership with, at the same time, Congress putting forward in the 80s, during the Reagan administration, a time-limited tax credit mm -hmm. to get things kicked off. And then, starting in the late 90s, things began to just rocket. It was always the government working with industry hand-in-hand hand, uh, and with Congress uh, to, to, to move things along. That's a story we can repeat over and over and over again. You're listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. On the show today, The Road From Paris, featuring nuclear physicist Ernest Moniz and former Assistant Secretary for Policy at the Energy Department, Susan Tierney. Find Aspen Ideas To Go on Apple Podcasts, NPR One, Google Play, and Sirius XM's Insight Channel. That's Channel 121. Our episodes cover need-to-know issues and introduce you to new ideas and different perspectives. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts. Now, back to the show. Here's Susan Tierney. So there have been a lot of reports since the Trump administration announced it was going to pull out of Paris. And those announcements have pointed to the fact that so many states are moving forward with their own clean energy agenda. So many cities and county governments have made commitments to dramatically reduce their greenhouse gas emissions. Mm -hmm. And private businesses all around the country, probably some of the ones that you work with, have made commitments to zero carbon supply for the long term. So can we get there with that alone? So, uh, well, first of all, I, can we get there? We will get there. Um, uh, it, I think at some point we will see the federal government uh, re-engaging in this, um, however many years that may take. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, what you've said, Sue, is absolutely the basis of, the opt of optimism that we're not going to get deflected by too much, at least. Uh, and that's because you said, as you said, mayors, governors, businesses, universities, uh, all kinds of civil society organizations uh, have, uh, shall we say, risen up uh, following the announcement uh, to make clear that they are going to stay on track. Uh, give some numbers, by the way. By my count, 22, 22 states 
have already made those statements. Uh, I've forgotten um, how many, many, many additional states, I've forgotten the number, where uh, in particular the largest city in that state has made the similar commitment. 1,400 businesses have made that commitment. I think the issue is going to be how can the governors, in particular the governors and the mayors, pick up some of the international leadership vacuum. It's not so simple, but I think it's possible. And some of you may have seen, just as, as a kind of a note on that, when uh, Governor Jerry Brown of California, and obviously California, is a, a, it's a huge economy, and B, it's a leader uh, in these areas. When Jerry Brown was in China, it's kind of unusual, President Xi made a highly publicized, photographed one-on-one uh, uh, -on -one meeting uh, with, with Governor Brown, showing this idea of looking for leadership. And interestingly, the Paris Accord has a mechanism for non-governmental entities to uh, attach to it. Uh, so putting that on steroids will be one of the activities going on over these next uh, months. But I do want to focus on the business commitment. To me, that is the surest indicator that, uh, again, we're going where we said we were going. Business people have long since concluded, certainly post-Paris, but even before Paris, that the handwriting's on the wall, that we're going to a low-carbon economy. I remind people that a decade ago, the oil companies, many of the oil companies were using typically a $40 a ton of carbon dioxide shadow price in their capital allocation planning. That pretty much tells you <laughs> what, what they were planning for. Now today, utilities, for example, once again, big capital decisions to make. They are not going to make those on the basis of a high carbon future. Uh, uh, you're not going to see new coal plants uh, being, uh, being, uh, being built. You might see some of the coal plants, existing coal plants, run a little bit longer than they would have. So there will be consequences, uh, but, uh, but frankly, and something, Sue, you've been very strong on saying, a bit, the big change going on with coal and nuclear in this country really is cheap natural gas. That's really the basis of what's going on. It's a market phenomenon, not some climate policy, because indeed, the climate policy for power plants, the clean power plan, which the administration said they're, going to, they're, going, they're not going to follow, and this, by the way, I believe, will, will come to pass. It will, not be, it will not be put into law. But it was only supposed to come into effect in 2022. To start blaming the loss of coal jobs, which have been occurring over the last 20 years on the clean power plan, is ridiculous on the face of it. Makes me sad whenever I see uh, the, the coal miners from Appalachia standing up the coal miners from Appalachia started losing their jobs when coal started moving to Wyoming mm -hmm. and Colorado in this neighborhood decades and decades ago. So, In fact, if I may just, <laughs> yeah. because this might be interesting to people that, if you look at the number of coal miners per ton of coal produced in Appalachia, it's roughly eight times higher than in the West uh, because it's a whole different surface mining, highly mechanized, uh, and frankly, even that, even that giant machine scraping coal in, the, in, the, in, the, uh, 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 in, in Wyoming uh, is now becoming an 
automated vehicle. <laughs> so even that one job driving it uh, is, uh, is, is going. One of the things I think is interesting on a, a point that you made, which is many of the electric companies around the country who have been, uh, have had their electricity mix dominated by coal for many years, and, and especially by fossil fuel, moreover, have begun to make commitments about fully decarbonizing their electricity supply over a number of decades. And one of the things I think is interesting is that many of the studies of deeply decarbonizing the, the economy of the US and the global community is to electrify many sources, many uses of electricity, both in industry, mm -hmm. in buildings that are now using natural gas, and in transportation sectors. So it's actually pretty interesting that the electricity companies not only want to decarbonize, but they've got a growth opportunity. And how, how do we imagine that playing mm -hmm. out between the, you know, the war of the titans uh, from the oil and other fossil companies and some of the electric companies in terms of market share going forward? Yeah, it's a, we are in a very dynamic period <laughs> in, this, in this sector. Uh, first of all, let me say again, in terms of factoids that people might want to keep in their minds, uh, at, at the beginning of the century, uh, this century, um, coal uh, was a bit more than half of our electricity supply. Gas was maybe 17, 18 percent uh, at that time. Last year, gas was 33 percent, coal 31 percent. So it's the first time in history that, that gas has surpassed uh, uh, coal, and the trend lines will uh, likely continue. Uh, and as, as was said earlier, uh, the main dynamic there is simply that natural gas is so abundant and so inexpensive. Uh, the, uh, and secondly, by the way, the, that market dynamic of gas replacing coal uh, is responsible for 60, 65 percent of the reduced carbon emissions in the United States. It's been that, that market-driven substitution which has accomplished that. Now, you mentioned deep decarbonization. Maybe it's worth saying a word about what that is. Uh, so the Paris, uh, the Paris Agreement targets of the United States and of others were typically a reduction of CO2 emissions in the 25, 30% range in the time frame of 2025 to 2030 you know, roughly speaking, the big bucket of, of commitments. And that's great. Uh, it is uh, it's a, an important step, but it's a first step. Uh, because without continuing on that reduction trajectory, there's no chance of getting the kind of stabilization of temperatures uh, that, that we aim for. And so um, what it means is that by mid-century, let's say, especially the developed economies, would have to be maybe 80% reduced in, in carbon emissions. That's deep decarbonization. How do we get there? First of all, electricity is the sector that is most decarbonizable. <laughs> we have the most options uh, uh, there. And, uh, and so... If we're going to have deep decarbonization, the electricity sector almost has to be close to totally zero carbon uh, on a mid-century uh, time frame. Now, when you look at other sectors, however, let's say transportation, God gave us gasoline, an incomparable transportation fuel, 
very high energy density, uh, liquid, really liquid, liquid. Uh, any of us here can go and pump it ourselves. You know, it's, it's, you know, it, it's, it's really amazing. You have to overcome that. So electrifying the transportation sector as much as possible has to be part of deep decarbonization. But in my view, there's no chance of, quotes, decarbonizing that sector. For one, and things like airplanes would be a good example of, it's hard to see a battery uh, flying a Dreamliner, uh, you know. Industry, maybe even more difficult. There are some major plants, which are big CO2 emitters, where you can imagine carbon capture, for example. But industry is very distributed, uh, much smaller sources. How are you going to do that? Buildings. Well, we're probably going to have to switch a lot to, ele to electrification of things like heating. Could be with heat pumps. It could be direct heating, uh, et cetera, which may be inefficient, but it doesn't matter on the emissions scale if electricity is decarbonized. But you know, when I do my physicists uh, back of the envelope uh, calculation about getting to deep decarbonization with the technologies we see today and their extrapolation for continued cost reduction, I got to tell you, I have a hard time getting beyond 50%. So I think that's where the, the deep innovation agenda comes in. We need some big breakthroughs in areas that we don't currently see uh, if, uh, to get there. And that's why that innovation agenda today, because we're only talking 30 years away. And for this kind of innovation, getting it all the way from basic science to lab to pilot to, to, to commercial to scaling, that's a multi-decadal process. So we don't have a lot of time to waste, but that's the agenda. Uh, the good side of that, of course, is that's exactly the agenda that will capture an enormous share of that multi-trillion dollar market. That's where the jobs are, not in dreams of the past. It's Aspen Ideas to Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for listening. Today's conversation features Susan Tierney and Ernest Moniz. Tierney is a senior advisor at Analysis Group, where she consults on energy markets and economic and environmental regulation. Moniz served under President Obama. He's recognized for his crucial role in negotiating an agreement on the Iranian nuclear program. Here's more of their conversation, which took place at the Aspen Ideas Festival in June. Susan Tierney. I want to um, ask you to talk a little bit about something people have called the Holy Grail. I'm thinking of storage. Uh, for decades and decades, as long as uh, it's been since Thomas Edison started his little plant, electricity had to be produced exactly when it's used. Uh, because it's not storable for the most part. But there are some changes underway, so that if you produced electricity from the sun during a sunny, sunny time of day, you could store it and use it later on. Or if you're producing electricity from wind, when the wind dies down, you could store it. There's a lot of work going on with, with storage that's quite precise. One second to another, you could store electricity and then inject it back into the system. 
but between seasons of the year when it's really sunny and windy versus not sunny and windy or peaks of the day that are off the charts, how do we think about storage and innovation and these decarbonization with technologies that right now aren't around the clock? Well, okay, first of all, uh, the, the issues of cost reduction for battery storage, you know, it's much maligned, but I've always said it does follow a, a, uh, a Moore's law. You know, Moore's law is that semiconductors double their power every 18 months. The only difference is that the time constant is a century rather than 18 months for, for batteries uh, historically. But that's changed in the last years dramatically. So in reality, battery costs, advanced now the advanced battery costs, have come down 70% uh, just in the last seven, eight years. Uh, and now you're seeing the, um, so I want, one, one part of this is I've already counted that into my vision for yes. the 50% yes. uh, that it's going to succeed. And if you look, what's happening, it's really impressive. Uh, uh, I would say right now, uh, utilities uh, can make long-term contracts, 20-year contracts, uh, for getting photovoltaic energy supplied with substantial battery storage for probably around nine cents per kilowatt hour without subsidy. Of course, they're, they're doing contracts now with subsidy, so it's maybe half that, but that is an impressive uh, you know, march to, to lower, lower costs. So I think you know, that's why we're seeing a lot of storage coming in. In fact, those of you from California uh, in particular may remember um, a couple of years ago there was the disaster at Aliso Canyon uh, this natural gas storage uh, site, it's not functioning. But what happened was the two utilities down there put in almost 100 megawatts of battery storage, and they just got through a horrible hot spell without any major problems, and that storage was a big, was a big part of it. Because otherwise they were relying on natural gas but they, to fuel Yeah, so the natural plants. gas out of that field was how they managed to, to, to do with peaks. So it's happening already. It's coming at us very, very fast. Uh, so certainly this kind of storage on the timescales of like within a day, uh, et cetera, I think we're not very far from having a major, major expansion of that, of that capacity. Now, if you get to seasonal storage, that's a much more difficult issue. Uh, the obvious one, which is in place today, but only geographically very selectively, is water storage, pumped water. So you you know, when you got the almost free juice, you pump water <laughs> high, and then it's up there for, for whenever you need it. Uh, but that's not going to be a, um, a broadly available uh, solution. I'm, I'm not sure I have one. Now, another one that is talked about uh, in certain areas, which is much more difficult for me to imagine, but maybe it happens, people talk about heating up maybe a cubic kilometer of rock um, uh, you know, in, in, the, uh, uh, in the summer and have it available for the winter, uh, so seasonal storage. So this is the message of deep innovation. We've got to try all kinds of crazy stuff, you know, uh, that has some possibility of, 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 of happening. So what's your favorite? Well, you know my favorite, my favorite holy grail. That, that to me, was like a mini grail. I know. <laughs> uh, the, the full holy grail. That's why thing. he was the secretary. The, no, no. <laughs> uh, but I think an example of a, uh, uh, what would be a completely transformational uh, technology 
And it's done in the laboratory today, but nothing like the ability to scale it commercially and have it available at a reasonable cost. And that would be the conversion of carbon dioxide. So let's say we capture carbon dioxide from plants or possibly out of the air, but let's say from plants. You combine it with water and with sunlight, and you produce a hydrocarbon fuel that you just use to replace gasoline. We have a DOE as a big program in that. Uh, it'll be decades if it works in a commercial sense. But there, for example, well, there's the answer to deep decarbonization. That alone could, could manage it. Electricity, efficiency, and drop-in hydrocarbon fuels, basically done, right? But, you know, these are the kinds of long, really long shots. Uh, and we, gotta, we have to invest in, you know, five, six, ten of those long shots uh, and hope that a couple, couple pay out. I have a whole list of questions, and I'm going to ask one more. And this one uh, occurred to me as I was listening to a conversation this morning about the combination of big data analytics, the technological revolution associated with institutions that set up platforms as opposed to providing a whole supply chain of things, mm -hmm. and crowdsourcing. So that reminds me of things that are going on in the electricity industry right now. Right mm -hmm. now, you can, uh, if you're a geek and interested in figuring out your own electricity supply, you can put on solar panels. You can have an electric vehicle that you plug in. You could sign up for the next wall system, which is a battery. You could put in a nest. Autonomous vehicles. Autonomous vehicles. You could put in all sorts of gadgets to manage the electricity use and be pretty much autonomous. And you could do that in ways that supply to the grid or pull from the grid and essentially are crowdsourcing electricity supply. So how do you think of that? Is that a niche market going forward or do we really see transformations in this industry as in so many others? <laughs> I think this is very far from niche. Uh, uh, in fact, let me, let me uh, if I may, kind of take a little detour and then yeah. come back. Or if I don't, remind me to come back. You know, okay, I, I will make a, a, a crazy-sounding statement that uh, maybe one of the biggest energy stories of the last couple of weeks is Amazon buys Whole Foods. Uh, now, what the hell is the connection of that to energy, right? But what it says to me is it, uh, it points out how the big IT companies... You know, Google buys thermostats, uh, smart thermostats, right? Uh, Amazon, uh, Apple does autonomous vehicles. You know, we go on and on. And uh, I think there's a real question to what extent it's the large IT integration, which is underpinned by the technologies you said, including AI and big data analytics and cross-selling and everything else. Is that going to be the future of every commodity? In the electricity sector, that development, that's why the Amazon buys Whole Foods is so, uh, <laughs> I think, so, so salient to the discussion. In the electricity sector, that, of course, at some point runs head-on into the regulatory structure. Because, in the, of course, in the electricity sector, historically, we had the most stodgy of all you know, cost of service, regulatory structure, vertically integrated Monopoly. uh, utilities, monopolies, et cetera, et cetera. Now, of course, that's been, starting in the 90s especially, that's been 
changed with many parts of the country in particular with so-called deregulation. But deregulation is not what people in other industries would call deregulation. Uh, uh, and so, for example, a major part of the action, I think, is going to be that whole Internet of Things which in the home environment means all those gadgets with, you know, with addresses. That you can uh, talk to. That you can talk to. They, well, uh, actually, they're probably not going to be terribly interested in that. They want to talk to each other uh, and talk to the outside world. And tell them uh, all about you. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and, and it's interesting. Right now, regulation could be viewed by the utilities as a safe harbor for their work in front of the meter. Protect us. Don't let those come, Amazon, et cetera, et cetera, own what we do. But that safe harbor would keep you from behind the meter, which is where all that Internet of Things is going to happen. So I think that the business model in utilities and the regulatory model together have got to find some evolution in a world of big data. And, uh, and one other thing for the utilities, of course, is, you know, business models tend to be stressed when the market isn't growing. And the electricity market is not growing. In some parts of the country, it's gone down. And, of course, success in our efficiency and demand-side management will only exacerbate that. So what is the business model? I think it's got to be, if they're going to survive, it's got to be somehow to be in that competition with these uh, big data companies in terms of who owns that space. A few months ago, uh, I, don't, I don't think he's here, Tom Fanning, a good friend, he's, uh, he's the CEO of the Southern Company. Uh, and actually, Southern Company is in a part of the country that is the most regulated. They have been very adventurous in, in technology and in R&D and all kinds of things, et cetera. But I was at a meeting with Tom in, in Atlanta a few months ago, and, uh, and I said, uh, my summary of this last discussion was, I'm going to be very curious in 10 years to see whether Google works for Tom Fanning or Tom Fanning works for Google. Uh, he was less amused in the audience. <laughs> Today's speakers are Susan Tierney and Ernest Moniz. Their conversation, The Road from Paris, was held on stage at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Now back to our featured conversation. Here's Susan Tierney. The, the concept of moving from a vertically integrated monopoly to a platform provider as we've seen in so many other industries, yep. is kind of the and, topic. And, and providing new services. That's right. And providing cross-linked services. Uh, that's where we're going. And making sure that the grid remains right. resilient, able, and everything right. else. And, and by the way, just as a last aside on that, and then I would couple that as well to the whole vision of a whole different city uh, yeah. built around autonomous transportation. Uh, it's... it's uh, it's going to be an interesting couple of decades. It's an exciting time. Who has a question? Sir. Uh, my question is automobiles. Uh, in the future, what, what is the future of gasoline use in automobiles? What percentage of automobiles will use gasoline, do you think, let's say 10, 20 years from now? 
Well, again, so I'm not going to give a percentage, but let me say that, uh, first of all, in the United States and globally, as you know, uh, urbanization is the trend. And by 2050, I think the UN projection remains that uh, the world's population of nine and a half billion or whatever uh, will be 70% in, in, in urban environments. I believe those urban environments uh, uh, will be transformed in many ways by electric vehicles and autonomous electric uh, vehicles with very, very different ownership models. Look, we're seeing it already today, right? Our kids, or in my case, maybe in a few years, my grandkids. My kids, uh, too. Uh, <laughs> you know, they, they don't want to own. They, they want these different ownership models and, uh, and Uber versus taxis and you name it. So, so I think there's going to be an enormous market for um, an enormous deployment of light-duty vehicles uh, in those urban environments. I find it harder to see that happening to that scale in the bigger, <laughs> bigger distance, heavier vehicles. Uh, um, uh, uh, although, even there, the extent to which something like trucking devolves much more into point-to-point -point travel, uh, which is now maybe 20%, I think, of the heavy trucking market, uh, that actually could go in the direction of these alternative approaches. If it's not electricity in terms of storage, it could be a fuel cell technology, uh, for example, where the refueling parts aren't so difficult if you have fleets and it's point to point. So I, I think there can be a big, a big transformation, but really heavy vehicles, certainly, again, I mentioned airplanes, some, uh, mar some marine uh, transportation. It's going to be hard to, I think, to displace those liquid uh, liquid fuels. Maybe, okay. maybe my holy grail will replace them in a clean way, but, but, and by the way, and of course it all hinges in terms of emissions on getting that zero carbon electricity yes. sector. Okay, I see a question here. I'm intrigued by the uh, st storage of uh, electricity, use of batteries. My understanding is that most of the world's supply of the rare earths that are required for batteries are in areas of the world where it's politically difficult to, to get some of them out. Could you comment on that, please? Yeah, so uh, there was a, uh, in particular, a flurry of activity, uh, I forget now, maybe it was close to a decade ago when China uh, decided, China was the major exporter of rare earths and they decided to stop exporting. Uh, they were actually ticked off with Japan, as, as I recall at the time. Um, uh, that, that has ended and other sources have been developed uh, which has got, which has brought the costs uh, way uh, way down, but I think you know, I think the thing you what you raise, I think, is a very important point, uh, and it's not only rare earths. We just saw an article on helium recently. To what extent, for critical materials, are we going to rely on a uh, global market versus having at least some kind of strategic reserve? We have that for oil. Uh, although, in my view, very unwisely, this administration has proposed uh, to, in the end, reduce the petroleum reserve by almost a third. And we could go into that discussion as well. Uh, but I think the whole issue of strategic reserves of critical materials is one that's not been well thought through. On rare earths, uh, the Department of Energy did establish uh, about seven, eight years ago a, a center uh, at, at, at Iowa State University that looks at the issue of uh, recycle 
of those rare earths, so you know, make as much use of them as possible, uh, and very importantly, to look for substitutions of more common elements for critical applications. So that's the kind of R&D and innovation that's going on, uh, which can obviate uh, some of the risks that you, you talk about. Uh, as you have talked about, uh, what we've seen happen with natural gas supply in this country is, through technology and capital markets working has taken an energy source that was maybe 10 years to somewhere between 50 to 100 years. So we have this incredible abundance of a low-carbon uh, resource, a relatively low-carbon. How can we transform this into, if you think decarbonization it, through electrification is the way to go, how do we do that? And it's probably the role of public sector, is it not? How do we upgrade our grids so that we can take nat gas from 33% to 70%? Well, first of all, 33% um, to 70% uh, would get you into carbon trouble. In principle, getting you to 60% uh, could, could lower carbon. Um, uh, but gas, look, gas is going to keep growing for a while. The gas re revolution, you said it, but let me say a couple, little bit more about it. The gas revolution has made this change in, in electricity production that we've already discussed, but it's made a lot of other very, very big changes also. Uh, it has been an enormous stimulus to manufacturing in the United States, um, and I don't mean just petrochemicals, because uh, the reality is that uh, a lot of industries need heat, and they're getting their heat a lot more cheaply today. There's been $185 billion invested in petrochemical plants, uh, largely in the Gulf, but also, also in, the, in the Midwest and, and, and Northeast. So it's been a complete game changer, uh, in, incredible. And that will continue. However, if I go to my deep decarbonization scenario, gas substituting for coal will lower carbon. But even today, we are seeing an issue Suppose 20,000 megawatts more of nuclear power shuts down in the next three years. And that is not an idle threat. I mean, this is... Could happen. There's about 20,000 more megawatts that are at risk, I would say. You agree? Out with of 100,000. Uh, out of roughly 100. Uh, if those were replaced even by high-efficiency natural gas, we would lose <laughs> about a third of all the progress we made in CO2 reductions. So that's just a, 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 a sign that when we go to deep decarbonization, either we start capturing the CO2 from natural gas or it's too carbon intensive. Uh, so that's a probably, if I had to guess, a 20-year inflection point from, from now. But that's the kind of thing we need to think about in looking at, looking at the mid-century outlook. Well, thank you, Secretary Moniz, for you, giving us this tour. Ernest Moniz is CEO and co-chairman of the Nuclear Threat Initiative. As Energy Secretary under President Obama, Moniz focused on developments in technology and innovation in his response to climate change. Susan Tierney is a senior advisor at Analysis Group. She served in the Clinton administration as the Assistant Secretary for Policy in the Energy Department. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Follow the Aspen Ideas Festival year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Explore thousands of videos from the festival on our website, aspenideas.org. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin, Eliza Kostas, and me, and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.